The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure that we are in fellowship, that we are ready to study the Word, filled with the Holy Spirit, and in fellowship with the Lord. We do that through the use of 1 John 1, 9, silent prayer, our standard procedure. So let's just bow our heads and begin with a few moments of silent prayer. Father, we do thank you so much for the privilege we have to gather together to study your infallible word this morning. We pray that as we study these important doctrines in Galatians chapter 5, that you would challenge us with the importance of walking by means of the Spirit and the priority of our spiritual life and the uniqueness of this spiritual life, which we as believer priests have during this church age. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to see these things through the filling of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And we continue our study of what it means to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since uh, we were in this passage, so just to make sure we all get our focus back on where we are, we have been studying since I think about the end of June this section from verse 16 down to 26, which is talking about and explaining the command of verse 16 to walk by means of the Spirit. So the context of this entire section of about 11 verses, is the believer's life in relationship to the Holy Spirit. And what we see here is that there are only two options. Walking is given as a metaphor for describing the lifestyle, the day-to-day life and empowerment of, of a person's life. And it's only conducted on one of two bases. One is the Holy Spirit. The other is the sin nature. There's no option. There's no alternative. There's no middle ground. There's no 
walking with one foot in the realm of the Spirit and the other foot in the realm of the sin nature. It's one or the other. The whole metaphor of walking portrays for us the internal dynamic of the person's life, of the believer's life. It's on the, the inner dynamic is either motivated, influenced, driven, and directed by the Holy Spirit, or it is the sin nature. In contrast, the unbeliever has only one internal dynamic, and that is the sin nature. Now, we've studied the sin nature in the past. Just a review to make sure you understand, because it's so hard for many people to comprehend the fact that that so many nice, wonderful, um, moral people out there are living their morality on the basis of the sin nature. The sin nature not only produces personal sins in terms of mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue and overt sins, but it also produces human good from the area of strength. The Scripture recognizes this in Isaiah 64.6. It says that all of our righteousnesses, so right there, it's called, all our good works are called a form of righteousness. But they're filthy rags. They are a form of righteousness that is relative. It's relative in comparison to other people. We can do many wonderful, good, moral, ethical things. Unbelievers can have lives of integrity. They can have a certain level of virtue in their life. But this does not come up to the standard of God, the perfect standard of God, which is which demands absolute perfection and conformity to His standard. So this, too, good deeds come out of the works of the flesh. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, when God warns Adam and Isha that if they eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it is a knowledge of human good and sin. It is not... Good in the sense of righteousness versus evil in the sense of unrighteousness. But it is a knowledge of that which is done apart from the empowerment of and enablement of God. And we discovered that, or the race discovers that through Adam's fall. So there's two options, and every unbeliever operates on the realm of the sin nature and the power of the sin nature. The third thing, or a third thing that we learn here is in verse 17, is that the this inner dynamic but for the believer is manifested in terms of a conflict. There is this continual warfare inside of us between the sin nature and the Holy Spirit. This is the warfare. So the issue in life is going to be determined by our volition. We exercise our free will. And one of the things that, that we constantly have to push ourselves on is to become more volitionally conscious. What do I mean by that? We need to be, many things that we do in life are the result of habit patterns. Habit patterns of thought, habit patterns of overt action. And we learn these things from the time that we are infants. We develop certain patterns. Some of those are, are influenced genetically, some because we see certain behavior patterns or emotional patterns exhibited for us by our parents. Others are things that we pick up from our peers or we learn or we choose. But everything that we do is volitionally determined. We make a choice, no matter. And, and later on in life, we think, "Well, I did it that way. I just, I just had to do it that way." We don't, are not necessarily conscious that at some point in our life, we chose that path of action, that habit pattern of thought or behavior or emotions or whatever the pattern is. We chose that 
with our volition. Now, that, that choice might have been something we made early in life, but it's just been a pattern ever since, and we are not consciously aware that it is volitional. So as we grow as believers, we have to become more and more aware that everything we do in life ultimately comes back to our own volition. And there is always lurking in our lives this battle between the Holy Spirit and the sin nature. The progression of our spiritual life is indicated in verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And here we have a first-class condition, meaning if and you are. It is assumed to be true that if you are a believer. We know this because this is built on verse 16. Verse 16 assumes the reality of walking by means of the Spirit and being a believer. So verse 18 says, If you are led by the Spirit and as a child of God, adopted into the royal family of God, one of the uh, 39 irrevocable things that happen to us at the moment of salvation, that if we are led by the Spirit and we are, we are not under the law. The point is that as a believer, we are not under the law, so don't live according to the law. Now, then we see in verses 19 down through 23, two different lists. One incorporates the works of the flesh, the other the fruit of the Spirit. And this is to give an external or some sort of manifestation of the inner dynamic which produces them. How do you know whether you're walking by means of the Spirit or walking by means of the flesh? It will manifest itself in character traits. It will manifest itself in overt action. And we see this when we come to verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is, and then we have a list of various traits that are produced by the Holy Spirit. Now, the first thing we need to observe here, which we did the last time, is that this is said to be a production from, and then it's a genitive clause in the Greek indicating the source, that the source of this is the Holy Spirit. It is not produced naturally. The spiritual life is a supernatural life. So that when we look at these terms, even though within the human realm, even though an unbeliever can produce something similar to this, it, it, they are not the same thing. There is a vast difference between the kind of love, the kind of uh, tranquility or contentment that a believer can have as a result of the Holy Spirit and that which the unbeliever experiences. So this is uniquely a product of the Holy Spirit. Now, if we think about it, you have a tree. How does this dynamic work? Let's say we have a tree. We'll draw the trunk here, and down here we have the, the root system. Then we have the tree itself, and on that tree produces all kinds of fruit. Now, what happens is the root system absorbs the nutrients. Nutrients from the soil and from water. In the same way, the believer is going to take in the Word of God and learn Bible doctrine under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. This realm involves our volition. 
to make learning doctrine the priority of our life, to be here Sunday morning, Wednesday night, to listen to tapes, to continuously be reminded of the power, provision, promises, and principles of God's Word. That is the method. We do not grow apart from the Word of God, and we do not grow apart from the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. The result of this whole process in the analogy of fruit bearing in a tree is that this takes time. The production of apples takes time. The production of cherries, whatever the production is on the fruit tree, it takes time. There is a process, a process of growth that takes place first. And there is also involved in this, there are seasons. There are times when fruit is more apparent. There are, there are periods in the life of that tree where there is more fruit bearing than others. And this is analogous to the fact that as a believer we grow, go through growth stages. So that at times in our experience we may think that we're, we're more mature, there's more fruit, or there is, you know, we're walking closer to the Lord. In reality that's just an, an appearance. Uh, the, the, a fruit tree in your, in your yard or in an orchard is continually growing and advancing and maturing, even though at some times the fruit is more evident than at other times. So there's this, this progression, and it is, it is the result of an inner dynamic that goes on inside the tree. These nutrients then are absorbed, and they are passed up through the trunk of the tree. And there is a dynamic that takes place in the metabolic process of the tree, whereby these nutrients in the soil, the water, the various chemicals, minerals, etc., are then transformed, they're metamorphed. There's a metamorphosis that takes place, a transformation that takes place where these chemicals are drawn into the tree and then they are changed, transformed. They are moved out through the branches to the buds, the flowers, the buds, and into the production of eventually a fruit. Now this internal dynamic here is analogous to the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we take this and we apply this by analogy to the believer, what we are doing is exercising our volition to learn the Word of God, to study doctrine, to think about it, concentrate on it, uh, meditate on it, which internalizes it. Now, all of this, of course, we cannot learn apart from God the Holy Spirit, who, as we've seen in the grace learning cycle, is the one who takes doctrine. And with the exercise of our positive volition in learning doctrine, the Holy Spirit takes it and transfers it into the innermost thinking realm of the soul, which is called the heart or the cardia in Greek. Now, our volition is involved in that to a point, but then from that point on, the Holy Spirit takes over in this internal transformation process. And that, in turn, is His role 
in strengthening our soul and building and strengthening our soul spiritually and putting the doctrine there where it is recalled to mind. And in that process, there is a transformation that takes place where our character is transformed from that of a a human, of a man, of an unbeliever. Our character is transformed into the image of Christ. Now, this whole concept of the image of Christ is a fascinating thing to study because when you go back to Genesis chapter 1, we see that man is created in the image, it's called the imago dei in Latin, the image of God. There's a lot of discussion among theologians as to what this image consists of. But I think it can be demonstrated fairly well that this image is not physical. Now, the reason I say that is because the words that are used there in Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, when God says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness, those words almost always refer to a physical form and a physical image. They're the words that are used of an idol, of a physical idol. But the reason we know that in that passage this is not talking about something physical, but it's talking about the immaterial makeup, what makes a man a man, a human being, um, is this internal image. This is what distinguishes man from the animals. The animals have nefesh, which is the word translated soul, which means there is a that, that's indicative of life. Plants do not have nefesh. So that's why that when you, when you uh, destroy a plant, it's not taking life in the biblical sense of life. That's why you can have uh, plant, the death of plant life, eating plants in the garden, and it's not considered death because the Bible doesn't consider that there was life there. That's not a biblical concept of life. Man's created in the image of God, and then in Genesis 4, after the fall... When Adam and now his wife is renamed Eve, when she gives birth to the first son, which is uh, said to be in the image now of Adam, the image of man, because something has happened to the imago dei in in, in Adam. It has now been marred, transformed, corrupted, because of sin. Now, man continues to procreate and generate human beings, and each one from one generation to the next multiplies the image of Adam. Then when you get into the New Testament, you have a totally new concept introduced, which is that of the image of Christ. And in regeneration... Because what is lost here, man is created originally trichotomous with a body, a human soul, and a human spirit. It is this total combination here of the human soul and the human spirit that comprises the image of God. And when Adam sins, he loses the human spirit. And the only way to regain the human spirit is through regeneration when God, God the Holy Spirit instantly creates that new human spirit and imparts that to the believer. In the New Testament, it is the consequence of regeneration 
there is a restoration of this image, but it has to be developed. It's still not fully what Adam had here, and it's not fully restored until glorification, but the process of image restoration is the process of sanctification, where as we grow, we are having, as Paul says in Galatians 3, Christ formed in you. It is the character of Christ, and we are being conformed, Romans 12, 1 and 2, we are to be, have our minds renewed so that we will be conformed to the image of Christ. And that's also the purpose in listed in Romans 8, uh, 28 and 29. Conform to the image of Christ. So what we see here is the whole process of sanctification is a turning back of the consequences of Adam's of the curse on Adam and the loss of the original image of God. It's never fully restored until glorification. And it is, ex- it is demonstrated through character. Character is the internal transformation of the production of the Holy Spirit. And then this has as its consequence Christian service. Now, Christian service is going to fall into two categories. It's either going to be related to our priesthood, and every believer at the moment of regeneration is made a priest unto God, and we do not have to go through a mediator to get to God other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But once we become a priest and we're in the family of God, we have direct access to God. We have priesthood or our um, royal ambassadorship. Our priesthood has to do with those things that directly relate to our service to God, such as prayer and giving, and ambassadorship has to do with our relationship to the world, which revolves around our witnessing in general. And that's just a summary there. But first, there is this inner transformation, the fruit of the Holy Spirit or production of the Holy Spirit. Don't make the mistake of confusing what takes place here in terms of internal character with what takes place over here in terms of overt Christian service. And unfortunately, what happens in, in, with most Christ, in most Christianity, these two are blended together or sometimes they're reversed. And the idea is that get somebody to come into church and immediately plug them into different roles. They're going to be an usher They're going to help out in the nursery. They're going to teach in Sunday school. Get them doing something because that gives them a sense of ownership in the local congregation and uh, feel like they're part of the team. And then eventually, hopefully, they will learn something. But they don't know anything. And this is how you can build a great organization operating on human viewpoint principles. And you can build big churches uh, of, you know, thousands of people but the problem is, it's not a production of God. And the Scripture says that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So we have to look at what's going on here as the inner transformation that is uniquely the production of God the Holy Spirit. And these character qualities are listed. There's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, and we went over these the last time, and I want to go back over them by way of review and mention a few things I didn't mention the last time. 
The first character quality is love. This is from the Greek word agape, which refers to the kind of unconditional love or virtue love that might be directed either towards God the Father or towards humanity. It is not an emotional, sentimental type of love based on how the person makes you feel. For example, the Lord talks about loving your enemies, doing good to those who hate you. It is responding to people on the basis of who God is and what Christ has done on the cross, not reacting to people on the basis of their character, on the basis of how they react or respond to you or how they feel about you. It's the kind of love that enables us to handle people testing in every form. Now, the second that's listed is joy. This is from the Greek word kara, which refers to inner happiness. This is beyond mere human happiness and emotion. This kind of joy is related to the third category, peace. It is a level of, of enthusiasm, I think, that is based on a mental attitude. As soon as I start using words like enthusiasm... And uh, it's trying to express something positive. I want you to realize this is not something that is emotional. Don't confuse it with personality either. I always remember the time when I, I was in my first church, and I had, a, I had one deacon who had real charismatic affinities. And this guy was just didn't know enough doctrine to come in out of the rain. And one year we had a missions conference, and I brought in a speaker, one of my favorite professors from Dallas Seminary, and he was one of these guys that just, you know, he lives his life plugged into a light socket. Very animated, excited. I mean, that's just his personality. He's just bounces off the walls, always smiley, happy, just really excited. And this idiot deacon of mine got up and said, boy, isn't it nice to, to see somebody who's full of the joy of the Lord? See, that's not the joy of the Lord. That's personality. And we have to distinguish. There can be some people tend to be very quiet very reserved, they may not show a lot of overt emotion, and they can have more of the joy produced by the Holy Spirit than somebody who has a smiley, effervescent, overtly happy kind of happy-go-lucky personality type because there is a difference between personality and the production of God the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about emotion here. Any unbeliever can have those kinds of emotions or that kind of personality type. We're talking about a mental attitude of happiness and enjoyment and pleasure in life no matter what the circumstances are because your focus is on God and His plan for your life and because doctrine has fortified your soul. So there is a relationship between the joy here and Jesus said in John 15:10 and 11, or 10 through 12, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. So there is a connection between having the kind of love, personal love for God the Father, and impersonal or unconditional love for all mankind. Both are included there, and this level of inner happiness. The third category was peace, and this is a supernatural peace that is characterized by an inner tranquility, contentment, and inner harmony. 
This allows you to move through the most disastrous of circumstances with emotional stability. We saw that in James. One of the sad things today, I was talking with a friend of mine before I went out to California, and I covered this when I was in California uh, last Sunday morning, and that is that we have substituted the the trend in the church today is that uh, I see and hear more and more about Christians who instead of handling adversity on the basis of the Holy Spirit and Bible doctrine, they are supplementing that with the modern mood drugs, Prozac, Zoloft, Ritalin, whatever it is. And more and more kids are doing that. You take a look at, uh, uh, Pam asked the nurse down at uh, the school before I left how many kids were on some sort of mood drug. Thirty percent of kids in school and in some places probably more than that, are on some sort of prescription drugs. It's because parents don't know how to discipline their kids because parents don't know how to discipline themselves. And so we see this continuous fragmentation in society, fragmentation, personal fragmentation, inability to handle uh, the outside pressure of adversity in life. And so we can't handle that. We can't pass anything on. To children, and so the children are out of control. We can't discipline them, and so the only way we can discipline our kids is to drug them, and we become an overdrug society. Now, I'm not saying that if you're on Prozac, Zoloft, something else, uh, that you should just go home and throw it away and say, okay, now I'm going to handle it in the Lord, because what's happened in the process of your life, if that's your situation, is that you have made a multitude of bad decisions in how you've handled stress from the time you were a child, no matter what that stress was. And some people have gone through incredibly difficult times, abusive situations growing up. It could involve horrendous things such as sexual abuse or incest or just physical abuse. And as a child, you only have one option, to handle things through the sin nature. And there are certain things that uh, people do naturally in terms of trying to handle stress that are the are adversity that are the result of, of that outside. Uh, they're just a natural product of their sin nature. And they make a person functional. And they're able to somehow move through life and survive horrible circumstances, but it's not on the basis of doctrine. And you see, the Word of God tells us that God has a plan for our life that makes us more than functional. We are able to move beyond whatever the adversity and suffering may be and have positive joy, inner happiness, peace, tranquility without reliance upon anything else other than the principles of God's Word. But what's happened in many people's lives because our whole culture has drifted so far from its roots in biblical doctrine and biblical teaching that people don't know how to handle life anymore without some kind of escape. So they handle the pain in their life through alcohol, through drugs. They handle it through all kinds of alternate, you know, through pleasure, whatever it may be. Kids get involved in escapist fantasies, from fantasy games to fantasy movies, whatever it might be. And there's all kinds of things that people utilize in life, many of which are things that aren't necessarily bad. It is the way they're using them just to solve the problems in their life, deaden the pain, ease their, the way through life so that they can somehow just survive or be functional. But as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have something more to offer. Now what happens, I think, in the dynamic is if a person has grown up and they have 
so fragmented their soul through the process of one bad decision after another because they don't know any better because they're an unbeliever. Or maybe even as a believer, nobody gave them any doctrine. Now they're at a point where the only way they can have any level of stability to even come to church, to come to Bible class, to learn doctrine, is to take their drugs. Fine, you need to. That's going to get you to a level of stability so you can learn doctrine, so you can eventually move beyond that and get off the drugs. So I'm not saying, and don't ever quote me as saying, well, you ought to just get rid of that. Because sometimes you've made so many bad decisions, that's the only thing you can do to have a level of stability to help you get to a point where you can go on and move beyond that. But that needs to be the goal, because the Bible doesn't say, my peace I leave to you as long as you take your Prozac every day. And that's true for some people, but they need to realize that they've got to move beyond that. That Prozac is, unfortunately, has become a, the, a substitute for the Holy Spirit for many many believers today because they, you know, and, and no matter what, it, what the circumstances in life may be, and there are a few, I think, le- legitimate circumstances where people are going through uh, some changes, uh, going through certain things and there are certain physical dynamics that are taking place in life where it may be very legitimate to be on a, something like that for a while. But I am convinced that in our society and as believers, we just don't take the Word of God at face value anymore. We are not willing to trust the Word of God and the sufficiency of God's grace. And that was the whole point of Paul's encounter with the thorn in the flesh adversity in uh, 2 Corinthians. And three times he prayed to the Lord to remove that adversity, and the Lord said no, because as long as that's there, you will be forced to rely exclusively on my grace and it will keep you from uh, the temptation, yielding to the temptation of arrogance. And you will discover that you live your life on the basis of my grace because it is my grace that is sufficient. That means it's enough. It doesn't need something added to it in order to make life work. My grace and grace alone is sufficient for you, for my power is made manifest in your weakness. And so we see that these character traits are uniquely the product of the Holy Spirit and the result of learning the Word of God and trusting the promises, the provisions, the principles, and the power of God exclusively in our lives as we go through Uh, difficult circumstances. Love, joy, peace, and then patience. The next is patience, which is macrothemia, which is uh, long-suffering, endurance in the spiritual life, kindness, goodness related to people. This is a result of grace orientation. We are to deal with people in kindness, politeness. That involves good manners, thoughtfulness of others, Goodness, faithfulness is a bad translation. It means faith, that we go through the spiritual life and we advance from faith to faith, Paul says in Romans. We move from saving faith to spiritual life faith, from logistical grace to advanced grace. And it is there's a dynamic that as we grow, the Holy Spirit strengthens our 
faith, our ability to trust God and to mix our faith with the promises of God. And then we come down to the last um, two, which are gentleness and self-control. Gentleness and self-control. Gentleness is the word... um, I've lost the word. I lost the page. 46. Okay. Gentleness is proutes. Which doesn't mean gentleness at all. P-R-A-U-T-E-S. There are two different Greek words used for humility, and this is one of them. This is the one that describes humility in action. This is the grace orientation takes place in the soul. The more you are oriented to God's grace, the more there is a development of the internal attitude uh, uh, the Greek word is tapanaphrasune, uh, which indicates a recognition of your proper place in the plan of God, that we are creatures. As this internal transformation of genuine humility takes place, it produces a result in our external behavior. This is not some form of self-effacement or putting yourself down or having some sort of... Uh, just a a false humility or false low view of yourself, but it is an application, a virtue towards other people and treating them in kindness. It is sometimes translated meekness, and it is strength in virtue because we know who we are and we're properly oriented to the plan of God. Moses was called the meekest man in the Old Testament, and he clearly was not some weak, little, wimpy, meek toast piece of pasta that just was knocked around by everything that came along. He was very strong, he was very firm, but there was an absence of arrogance. And that is the emphasis of this word is a complete removal of arrogance and self-centeredness and self-absorption from the life of of the person. Ephesians 4.2 describes the spiritual life this way, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Notice those three words are the same three words that we find in Galatians 5.22 and 23. Humility is proutes. Um, gent- gentleness uh, is taponaphrosune. Is, um, <coughs> And patience is makrothemia, showing forbearance to one another in love. And then we come to the last quality here, enkratia, which looks like this in the Greek. E-N-K-R-A-T-E-I-A. Whenever you have... This kind of a combination, it's really the gamma, the G, is pronounced like an N. In Kratia, and this means self-mastery. Self-mastery, 
self-control, self-discipline. This is a production of the Holy Spirit. Now, any unbeliever can have a level of self-discipline and self-control. This is talking about specifically self-mastery in relationship to control of the lust of the flesh, control of the sin nature, and application of doctrine, not doing what we might want to do or following the lusts of the sin nature, but following the dictates of God the Holy Spirit given through the Scriptures. So the last are gentleness, or truly meekness, application of grace orientation and self-discipline. Against such things there is no law. So this indicates there is a character quality and there's nothing out there that can prevent you from developing these qualities in your life. As long as you are studying God's Word and applying God's Word, there is no person, no circumstance, no event that can keep you from producing this, as long as you are positive to God and applying Scripture in your life. And then we come to verse 24. Verse 24 says in the English, the New American Standard, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, that's good as far as it goes, but we have to understand the dynamic here. He's reaching a conclusion in verse 24 and taking us to a new level in his explanation of the battle between the sin nature and the the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, it begins with the what's called a post-positive conjunction, Deb, because it always comes second in the sentence, even though it's translated first, D-E. Now, this word does a multitude of actions. It can just be a simple and. Often it can be a but or contrast. But it is also used in, in the framework of an explanation to indicate the development of thought to the next level. So it should be translated here, Now you see. He has explained the basics of the argument. You have the basic command in verse 16. This is then explained in terms of the cause of the battle because the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. We get a little more information in verse 18 about being led by the Spirit. Then in 19 through 23, we see the manifestations, how you can do a little self-evaluation to determine whether you're walking by means of the flesh or the Spirit. And now he's going to take us to a concluding level. Now you see, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He is going to emphasize a crucial principle for understanding the dynamic of the spiritual life is something that happened at the point of salvation. It is what we call retroactive, which means going back to the beginning. Retroactive, going back, retroactive positional truth. Retroactive positional truth. It is what takes place at the moment of salvation in the life of the believer. Now remember... At the moment of salvation, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. At that instant, you were regenerated. 
God did 39 irrevocable things in your life, part of which was your identification with Christ. This is done through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We spent a lot of time talking about this in some of the classes last week, and and I think I had some ideas that were completely new to many of these men because most of them are Baptists. Just because you see the word baptism in the Scripture, don't automatically think of water. Most of the baptisms in the Scripture are dry baptisms. They are not wet baptisms. And in one particular case of the eight baptisms in Scripture, the people who are wet are the ones who are killed. That's the baptism of Noah's flood. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, the the meaning of the word baptism is immersion. But it has a significance which means identification. For example, you go back into classical Greek literature and the new recruit soldiers who have gone through basic training in the Spartan army would take their spears and they would dip them into a bucket of pig's blood. And it was an identification. They were now ready to go into combat and they were identifying their weapon with blood. That was its purpose was violence and warfare, and so it has a significance. And what happens in the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that an identification takes place. The believer is identified with the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, so that that identification then frees us from the bondage to the sin nature. This relates to the fact that in the spiritual life there are three phases to salvation. At phase one, we are saved from the penalty of sin. The eternal penalty of sin is condemnation in the lake of fire. But at that moment of faith alone in Christ alone, when we're identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, the power of the sin nature is broken, or its mastery is broken, but its presence is still there 100%. And there is no sin that you could commit as an unbeliever that you can't still commit as a believer. Everything you did as as an unbeliever, you can still do as as a believer and sometimes in spades. So don't get the idea that just because you're a believer that somehow your sin nature isn't as wicked, evil, and heinous as it was before you were saved. It is if you haven't discovered that. And you can turn your back on the Lord and you can turn your back on the Holy Spirit and you can continue to live life on your own resources and you're going to be living in the power of the sin nature for the rest of your life no matter how moral you might be or religious you might be. And this whole principle here is to understand that the sin nature is the the master. We are slaves to unrighteousness, Romans 6 says. And at the moment of salvation, because of our identification with Christ, this power, this mastery of the sin nature is broken. The only reason that you have trouble with the sin nature controlling your life is because you choose to let the sin nature control your life. It goes back to volition. So we look at this passage. Now you see that those who belong to Christ, and that's not exactly what it says in the original, it begins with a nominative, plural, 
that looks like this, rough breathing, H-O-I, which is your relative pronoun and should be translated as it is there, those who. But then we have the phrase, to Christu, which T-O-U is the definite article, C-H-R-I-S-T-O-U. This O-U ending indicates that it is a genitive singular, and that indicates here relationship. So it doesn't have the word belong, but that is inherent in the genitive construction. Those who belong to Christ. Now that refers to every single person who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you see, remember this, this is the principle that everyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ belongs to Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying, just to give an expanded translation. And they have crucified... And here we have an, the, the word is staurao, S-T-A-U-R-O-O, from stauros, S-T-A-U-R-O-S, the noun, which originally meant a stake. And in the development of the punishment of crucifixion, first they would just hang somebody on a stake or a pole, Later, they would take this one pole and they would attach a cross beam on the top of it. Not the familiar cross that we see that looked like this. But what they would do is they would have just a post in the ground. And then when the uh, victim of crucifixion was brought up, they would have the cross piece on the ground. And they would nail their hands to that cross piece. And then they would use some form of a winch and pulley to to get a grip on this cross piece and hoist it to the top of the pole, and then the person would hang like that from the top of the pole. And that must have been a very pleasant experience for the victim of crucifixion to have this hoisting process take place while they had a nail driven through their wrists and attached to that cross piece. So it's a reference to the crucifixion of Christ, and this is not the only time that Paul has mentioned this in this epistle. So let's turn back to chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20. Now in Galatians 3, excuse me, Galatians 5:24, Stalrao is an aorist um, passive indicative. The aorist indicates that it is just simple past, just referring to the fact that as believers this has happened in our past. The passive indicates that we receive the action of the verb. We don't crucify ourselves. We don't, we don't do it to ourselves. The indicative mood is the mood of reality, a statement of doctrine. Now the reason I say this is when we come to verse, chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And there we have a different form of the, of the verb, stauraō. We have a compound verb, sous-stauraō. Uh, stauraō plus the preposition soon, which means with, indicating co-crucifixion with Christ. And there it is a perfect passive indicative. And the perfect tense always indicates past action, It indicates past action, but the emphasis is usually on 
the present ongoing results from that past action. So what Paul is saying is we have been crucified with Christ, indicating at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, something happened that has results that go on throughout our spiritual life. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Notice the emphasis there. It's not me and my character. It is Christ and His character. And this is a result of something that happened at the point of salvation. Now, if we want to understand that, we have to turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 is the development in the New Testament of the doctrine of positional truth. Romans chapter 6. We'll start in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? No. Meganoita. May it never, never be. Strongest negation in the Greek. Are we to continue in sin? No. In other words, there is to be a break with sin in the life of the believer. Now, this cannot happen totally. We are always going to sin. We're always going to have a sin nature, but we do not justify, rationalize, or somehow uh, minimize the sin in our life simply because there is grace. Grace means that sin is not going to permanently destroy our relationship with the Lord once we're saved. It doesn't mean that you can just uh, excuse it and rationalize it and continue to live in it. That is antinomianism. And verse 3 reminds us of the principle. And the principle is positional truth. Do you not know that all of us, that is all believers who have been baptized into Christ Jesus. This is what we're talking about in this diagram. We have all been baptized into Christ Jesus. That means we have all been identified. We've been placed in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anybody be in Christ, we are all in Christ, that those who have been identified are placed into Christ, have been baptized into His death. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death. Now, this is none of this is water baptism. This is all talking about our identification with Christ that took place at the moment of salvation. In order that His Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. The whole purpose for our being placed in Christ, our being identified with His death, burial, and resurrection is so that we would walk in newness of life, that our life would be different than what it was as an unbeliever. That we would not be dominated by sin. Verse 5, For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Because we know this, causal adverbial participle, because we know this, that our old self was, what? Crucified with Him, for the purpose that our body of sin, that is the sin nature, might be done away with, nullified, abolished. It's the same word used for the cessation of the, of the uh, temporary spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 and following. That our body of sin, our sin nature, might be abolished, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Why? Verse 7, because he who has died... This is every believer in Christ. You have died to sin. You've been crucified. Is freed from sin. That means not that the sin nature isn't there, 
but we now have a true option to make choices we did not have before we were saved. Before you're saved, you only have one option to do that, which is generated by the sin nature, either in terms of human good or in terms of sin. Now look at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over Him. And then skip down to verse 11. Even so, consider. This is logizomai in the Greek. It means to think, to reason. From logos, logic. It means to reason from a, from a principle, a premise to a conclusion. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Conclusion, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust. Why? Verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, let's go back and wrap up in Galatians 5. You see, all that Paul is saying is that because we have been crucified with Christ, this is the principle, that control of the sin nature, that absolute control of the sin nature, has been severed and broken. We're not under law but under grace. And we need to recognize that because of the principle of retroactive positional truth, we need not, should not, and ought not follow the lusts of the flesh, its passions, and desires. So we'll stop there this morning and come back next week and conclude this section with an understanding of what's going on in terms of living by the Spirit and walking by the Spirit in verse 25. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for the opportunity to study these things this morning. We pray that You would help us to assimilate these things, to see the internal dynamic, the importance of relying upon the Holy Spirit, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, learning Your Word, that we might be transformed from the inside out into the image of Jesus Christ, that you might be glorified both in time and for all eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.